0: My dear friends in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as we uh, say goodbye to another summer, bidding farewell to long days of warmth and sunshine, vacations and camping trips and whatnot, and stealing ourselves for another school year and just generally getting back to it, I suppose it's appropriate to Take a day to celebrate work. This is, of course, Labor Day weekend. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but Labor Day has been an official observance for the past 127 years in our country, and its origins even go back a few years before that. Before it was a federal holiday, Labor Day was recognized by labor activists in individual states. New York State was the first to introduce a bill, but Oregon was actually the first to pass a law recognizing Labor Day on February 21st, 1887. And during that year of 1887, four more states, Colorado, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York, all passed laws creating a Labor Day holiday. And by the end of that decade, the 1880s, Connecticut, Nebraska, Pennsylvania also followed suit. By 1994, 23 more states, Past uh, national holiday, and on June 28, 1894, our Congress actually put into law, passed a bill, creating a holiday on the first Monday of September to celebrate work. President Grover Cleveland signed it into law, and now we have Labor Day. It was instituted first as an annual celebration of the social and economic achievements of American workers recognizing the contributions that uh, workers have made to America's strength and prosperity and well-being. I think there's something in the American ethos that has always tied work and industry to progress, sometimes to our detriment, to the point that we have to force ourselves to take a break from it by declaring a national holiday to celebrate it. It's kind of ironic when you actually think about it, but it's evident in so much of our lives together, you know, work, this notion that what we do, what we do is who we are. Mm. So often the first thing you ask a new acquaintance upon meeting them is, what do you do? Tell me what you do. Or where did you work if they're retired? Where did you used to work? as though the answer to that question will tell us most of what we need to know about a person Hmm. if someone asks me so what do you do and I answer I'm a Lutheran pastor that's usually a good way to kill a conversation before it even gets started (laughs) because all of a sudden I see their eyes glaze over and they're replaying in their head everything they've said up until that point right? Wondering if their language and manners were inoffensive and up to snuff. And it's in that moment that I realize once again, I always realize this, that it's probably not not their preconceived notions of what a Lutheran pastor does or doesn't do. It's their preconceived notions of who and what God is that have them nervous, right? Because after all, if I in my role as a pastor am somehow a representative for God... And if in their mind God is primarily a scold, right? <laughs> Scrutinizing their behavior, their language, their thoughts, and their Facebook posts, and that is what I must be about too, right? My first instinct, whenever this happens, is always to want to back a conversation up really quick and say, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I sure, I preach and I teach and I lead and I counsel and console, but... But, you know, I also sing and I pick guitar and I husband and I parent and I befriend and I love and I hike and I run and I camp and I read and I golf and I cook. But I usually never get the chance to do that before the conversation has quickly pivoted to some more benign subject like the weather. But all this has led me to think about what I would say if God and I were standing together Backyard at a Labor Day barbecue, and someone came up to me and said, Hey, inter- he introduce me to your friend. Tell me what you know, what does he do? What does your friend do? Hmm. Whom I happen to know as the maker of heaven and earth, but who they might not know from Adam, right? What does your friend do? They'd say. And I probably couldn't do any better than echoing the words of the psalm that we read responsively this morning. Psalm 146. I could say, well, this is God who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. What does he do? Well, God keeps faith forever, executes justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, sets prisoners free, opens the eyes of the blind, lifts up those who are bowed down, loves the righteous, watches over the strangers, upholds the orphan and widow, reigns forever. Creates, keeps, works justice, frees, opens, lifts, loves, watches over, upholds, and reigns. This is what God does. When we really want to understand the work of God, as folks who call themselves Christians, right, our first place to look is in Jesus, correct? The one whom John called the Word made flesh. The one who the, uh, the author of the letter to the Colossians called the image of the invisible God. And catching up with Jesus today in Mark's Gospel, we learn something else about what God does. Apparently God crosses borderlines. Hmm. So far in Mark's Gospel, we've already seen Jesus doing some of those things that the psalmist saying of. We've already heard stories about him feeding and, and healing, opening and lifting. Now, if you'll recall last Sunday, after this exhausting little encounter he has with some scribes and Pharisees who are questioning his commitment to Jewish purity laws, an exasperated Jesus decides to head out of there. He leaves Galilee, and he goes north. You can see it on the map. Galilee is down here in the south. That's the Sea of Galilee. He was up in the north near Capernaum. He goes all the way up there to Tyre, which is in Greek territory, Phoenicia okay? All the way up to Tyre, to the country of the Greeks, apart from his own people who are always on the hunt for a Messiah. So maybe for a moment he can catch his breath. All indications seem to be that he was looking for a little Labor Day vacay of his own, right? A chance to let up on some of his work and simply regroup. Remember the gospel this morning? He entered a house there and didn't want anyone to know he was there. (laughs) Sounds to me like someone looking for some incognito downtime. But here's where things get interesting. Jesus quickly discovers that uh, the needs and hungers and hurts of his own people that will define his work are not simply the needs and hurts and hungers of his own people. The borderline separating Israel from Phoenicia is too permeable to separate the heart of God from a hurting humanity. A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about Jesus. She came down and bowed down at his feet. Now, this woman was a Greek, a Gentile, of Syrophoenician origin. In other words, she was not Jewish. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, and he said to her, Let the children be fed first. It's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Well, that certainly doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? Maybe not, but it sure does sound like someone who might be a little bit exhausted and a little on the cranky side from having his vacation interrupted. More to the point, it would have been exactly what Jesus' traveling companions, his own disciples, would have been thinking. He just puts words to it. The borderline separating the children of Abraham from their Gentile neighbors was pretty well established in their hearts and minds. She was not one of them. She was other, and therefore undeserving of his time and attention. But maybe this Greek woman knew something that Jesus may not even have thought of until this very moment she uses a bit of logical judo on him you know in judo you use the body weight of your opponent against them she uses the weight of his own argument against him and she's answered sir even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table it almost seems as though she's saying jesus i know i know what you do i know the power of life you embody and I also trust that it's way more than even you think. More than enough on your table. More than enough. Overflowing and spilling over to the ground so that even those who aren't invited to the table are fed. And then he said to her, Huh, maybe you're right. Perhaps I imagined my work having a smaller reach than I should have. So for saying that, you may go. Your daughter has been healed. The demon has left her. So she went home and found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. I've always wondered if this little encounter here didn't get Jesus thinking even deeper about this whole who's in and who's out business, you know? Our general obsession with border lines. It sure seems so, you know? Because instead of heading back home by the most direct route possible, it could have come straight south, He heads home, the scriptures say, by way of Sidon and then the cities of the Decapolis. So he goes all the way north, crossing more borders, and all the way over to the east through what is Syria, at that time an ancient enemy of Israel. And it's out there on another borderline that he meets a man who cannot hear, cannot speak. Because of his physical impairments, he too knows a reality of what it means to be CUT OFF FROM COMMUNITY, WHAT IT MEANS TO BE EXCLUDED. NO DOUBT THIS MAN KNOWS A LONELINESS AND AN ISOLATION THAT IS OVERPOWERING, RIGHT? PARTICULARLY IN A CULTURE THAT HAD NO ESTABLISHED SIGN LANGUAGE OR PRINT MEDIA. THIS WAS AN ORAL CULTURE WHERE THINGS WERE SHARED THROUGH SPEECH, THROUGH HEARING. LACKING BOTH THOSE ABILITIES, HE'S CUT OFF IN A VERY TRAGIC WAY. BUT APPARENTLY, HE HAS SOME PEOPLE LOOKING AFTER HIM, FRIENDS, Bring him to Jesus. Presumably, they're Syrian neighbors who, like the Greek woman in our last story, believes that Jesus' power can't be hemmed in by border lines of whatever making. And unlike the healing in that first story, where Jesus simply kind of proclaims release and it happens from a distance, this healing is different. It's up close. It's personal almost embarrassingly intimate, fingers in ears, spit transferred onto a tongue, a foreign tongue, and a holy sigh, Ephatha, Ephatha, be opened. And As much as Jesus was talking to that man, to that man's ears and that man's mouth, I wonder if he wasn't also talking to himself. Be opened. Be opened. And borderlines begin to vanish. Be open to a world of need outside your own family or tribe or clan that waits with you for the healing and feeding and uplifting that God offers. Be opened to following the one you call Lord across the borderline of race or creed or gender or platform. To discover the works of God waiting to be done there. Be open. Be open to letting that work be done through you. The Apostle James really kind of laid it out there for us this morning in that second lesson that Bart read. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism and obsession then with borderlines and boundaries, who's in and who's out, who's deserving and who's undeserving, Do you really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? What good is it? My brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but you don't want to do the work, the works of God, can faith save you? You know, in the Greek text, um, the more accurate translation there is, Can your faith save him? In other words, your brother. If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, eat your fill, God bless, and yet you don't supply their bodily needs, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it isn't willing to do the works of God, is really no faith at all. Can your faith save a neighbor? Well, apparently James thinks so especially if it takes you with Jesus over the borderline. The next time someone asks you, so what do you do? Think hard about how you respond. Hmm? Think, about, think with the psalmist about what your God does and the work into which you're invited as well. That's something to think about on this Labor Day weekend. Amen.